on our, around our Instapot this morning, which is something that we have uh, learned to love, especially, but mostly we've just been using it to cook like rice and uh, quinoa and other things that normally when you're doing them on the stove, especially in the summertime, take a long time and they just add extra heat. And this uh, works out a little bit nicer. And the reason I brought just that little visual is, is for one word. Because one of the main functions of the Instapot is that it deals with pressure. We're going to be starting a new book of the Bible over, uh, I'm not exactly sure how many weeks, but at least six or seven weeks. We're going to be in the book of Ruth. And uh, I'm starting a new series. And I sort of titled the overall series, Built to Last, because one of the primary things about the book of Ruth is that it is a story that's full of a lot of stuff, but it's primarily about relationships, both the interpersonal relationships between human and human, but also that higher relationship between people and God. Pressure is something that we actually, each of us, know about. All of us have experience with pressure. We all have seen it, we live it, and it actually is not always a bad thing. Pressure actually is one of those forces that provides a lot of good things in our world. Everyone who has a ring that has a diamond on it is a beneficiary of pressure. Without time and pressure, you would not have a diamond. Now, if you don't like diamonds, that's why I brought the Instapot cooker. Instapot cooker also, through the use of pressure, cooks things faster. And it's even got this little, little button on the top that when the pressure gets too high, what happens to it? It pops up and it lets a little bit of that excess pressure off. Do you know that pressure keeps your gas mileage lower, which right, or higher, which is good right now. Properly inflated tires lower your gas consumption. They make your car more fuel efficient. Pressure can be a very good thing. So if you want to save money at the pump, get your tires at the right pressure. Every time you use a straw, pressure is helping you. Every time you blow a balloon, pressure is helping you. Every time you fly an airplane, like a paper airplane, or you fly in a real airplane, you are the beneficiary of pressure. Because pressure is simply a force applied over a specific area. It's neither good nor bad, it just is. But everything has a normal operating range of pressure. If your tires are too low, what happens to your car? squeal. You get worse gas mileage. If the pressure is too high in your tires, what happens? They pop. They blow. And then you have a, you have a decent day turned into a really bad day. Everything has a normal operating range for pressure. And it's when we start to exceed that normal range that things can go haywire. When things are out of whack a little bit. Things boil over just like in the Instapot, when the pressure gets too high, it releases some of that excess pressure. Sometimes things explode. If it didn't have this little button here, 
where I put where I put some sort of tape over it, this thing might actually explode if it wasn't used properly. Too much pressure can damage or destroy whatever is increasing that force. We know pressure more as another word, stress. Stress is just a form of pressure. It's the word that we feel and use in our lives for all of the things that increase over time. Things maybe start out as manageable, but as the stress keeps going, it quickly can become unmanageable for us. And if we don't address or release the increasing pressure in our lives, it can cause us actually to make well-intentioned yet poor choices. And often it's our homes and our relationships that bear the brunt of that. Today as we start in a new book of the Bible, we're going to look at some of the broad issues that impact our primary relationships. And stress is one of the biggest. It's something that touches just about every part of our life. But also we'll be able to look at some of the qualities that help us build stronger relationships over time, both with one another and especially with the Lord our God. God's Word actually has a lot to say about forming relationships that are built to last. And ultimately the goal is for us to be able to leave a legacy through those relationships that honors God. Now, tucked into the Old Testament, right after the book of Judges and before uh, Samuel and Kings, is a very short book, and if you blink, you will miss it. It's the book of Ruth. It's four short chapters. You can actually read the whole thing in a matter of minutes. But it is such a complex and emotional story. There's romance. There's intrigue. There's loss. There's friendship, and ultimately there is trust and faithfulness that we see in this story as well. We're going to look at just the first few verses of the book of Ruth this morning. And as we look at this start, we'll see that the pressure and the stress that we experience in life is actually not a new thing at all. It's almost as if stress is a part of human existence. And it certainly was true in this story. And there are many, many other examples in the Bible that we can look at. So, in essence, take heart. The stress that you are feeling, you are not alone. Your particular stress might look a little bit differently than somebody else's, but you are not alone in this. So let's identify some of the pressures that we see. There are three different areas that, that this book addresses right away. The first is pressures from cultural sources. These would be things outside of your control or external sources. And cultural pressure can increase your stress in the home. Over the last couple of years in particular, who has felt some more stress, whether it's tangible or not, in your home just because of what's happening around you? Thank you for raising your hand. I mean, thank you for your honesty in that. Pressure from cultural sources does increase our stress at home. Ruth 1, chapter 1, in the very beginning, it's, this is how the book starts. It says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. And I'll stop there. In the days when the judges ruled. 
Now, as we learn about God walking with his people, he's creating this new thing. And in the beginning, they did not have a king. They were led by who? Judges. They were led by judges who basically wore mouthpieces or spoke on behalf of God. God was their king, and these judges were the leaders of the people of God. Let me read the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, so if you want to read this, you can go back just one verse. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. How did that work out? How does that work out today? Not too well. You see, in the time of the judges, which is when the book of Ruth, or this story takes place, it was a chaotic time when people did whatever they wanted to do, whatever they thought was right. And the results of choices that they had made generations earlier were actually still bearing bad fruit then, the consequences of their previous actions and those of their ancestors were bearing fruit and not the good kind of fruit. It sounds strangely like what an anonymous writer might say today when they post online or when if you happen to look at the toxic comments at the bottom of an online article. I would encourage you not to do that, by the way. There's not a whole lot of good fruit that usually comes out of those conversations. Everything is relative, and these were some of the, the problems that they had too in their day. Excessive individualism, doing what they want, having it their way, lacking self-control, inconsistent models of people to learn from and lean on, and the list goes on and on. It was almost as if bad choice was compounding bad choice. The message quickly became, right is whatever you say it is. This did not sit well with God. Sometimes it's hard to know when we read some of these verses which century we're actually talking about because it sounds an awful lot like today in many ways. Everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes or even found ways to justify it or claim that it was God's way. And the point both then and today for God's people then and God's people today is that if anything other than God is driving and directing your life at the foundational level, then those external forces will cause you to miss a step in this world. It will lead to increasing pressure, what we might call stress, in our lives, and that will quickly overwhelm us. This doesn't always happen quickly. Like many things, it takes pressure and time. But eventually, we are in over our head. And we, like the people of Israel, we can forget who our king is, who we are allied to, and who is really in control of our lives. We're well aware of the pressure that we face from cultural sources, those things outside of us that press in. But that's not the only pressure. Let me read the next part of the verse. It says, A severe famine came upon the land. And this is the second source of pressure that we often face. It's pressure from natural sources. These are things that um, 
actually increase the stress that we experience, and we have no control over them. Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes rain is scarce. Even the rain that fell this morning was pretty meager. Sometimes crops fail, and people are hungry, and famines, and fires. And these natural forces can strike indiscriminately, and no one is immune, not even God's people are immune from some of these forces. They are beyond our control, and the family in this particular story is a perfect example of that. There was a severe famine in the land. When we read things like that, we start to wonder, why? Why in the land that God had promised to his people, why was there a famine? It was promised to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Euphemisms for good things. Assuming you like milk and honey and that sort of stuff. We ask questions like, why do natural disasters happen? Why is there terrible suffering? Or we might even say it this way, why do bad things happen to good people? And the short answer is that we don't know why. We don't always know why. Problems from these natural forces sometimes just happen because we live in a complex world. In any event, these cultural pressures and these natural pressures that just are a part of life, they add stress to your life, and they even can cause or lead to a third kind of pressure or stress. The last part, by the way, we're still in verse 1. This is all just from verse 1. The last part says this. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home, and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. That's the end of verse 1. So the family, they're living in Bethlehem, in the land of promise. There's a severe famine in the land, and so this man chooses to pack his family up, and they move to Moab. Moab is not in the land of promise. It's not the promised land. It is on the other side of the Dead Sea across the Jordan River, and Moab is one of Israel's old, old enemies. They are a nation that has consistently opposed God. They worship other gods, and they have long tempted God's people away from the Lord. And this is where this man brings his family. We know that biblical names have great significance. That what we read of in the Bible when we read somebody's name, it describes sometimes your personality, the circumstances of your life. We've shared this before about other names. This man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech means God is my king. What a name to live into. Maybe a difficult name to live into. His name meant, God is my king. The man's wife was Naomi. Naomi means sweet one or pleasant beauty. Maybe that's what he called his wife at times. Sweet one, pleasant beauty. So you can get a sense of the wonderful meaning behind this couple's names. They have two sons. 
and their given names describe the circumstances of their life. Their first son, his name is Malon. Malon, what do you think this Malon means? He's their firstborn. What wonderful name does he have? It means sickly one. Yeah, that was my initial reaction too. Ooh, okay, something's, something's going on here. Killian is their secondborn. Kind of a cool name. It means frailty or wasting away. So just from their names alone, we get a sense of what this family was facing. The stress that they were under, the circumstances of their life, and now they were moving into a foreign country. You know that the town they were from Bethlehem? Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? It means bread house, house of bread. Basically, the storehouse is full. And now they have a family. So there's all this wordplay going on just in these first few verses. This man, Elimelech, four mouths to feed, a lack of food. If this was you and your family, it's an impossible choice. What would you do? I would do whatever it takes so that my family can eat. You might have done something similar as well. I don't think that the wrong thing was what this man chose initially. Famine in God's promised land, where everyone did as they saw fit, or food in the land of your enemy. You can see it's almost an impossible choice for him. Now moving next door to Moab sounds kind of innocent to us. If you're thinking of moving into the next town or into maybe a more fruitful area where there's a better job or, you know, for us, that's not such a big deal. But for them, it was a big deal. It would be like moving into your mortal enemy, the land of your mortal enemy. Outside of the promised land, there were Canaanites that were left there worshiping other gods. The pressures and the temptations were high for all of them. And the Lord had long ago commanded his people not to actually marry with the people of Moab because things would get pretty gnarly very quick. They would get off track. They would be tempted to worship other gods. And we don't know if this family intended to stay. But in any case, we do know that they stayed for at least 10 years. Imagine the pressure you're facing if you are called to live where you are living in the land of your enemy for 10 years, day after day, after day, after day. I don't think that Elimelech's main problem was his choice to leave the promised land. I think his main issue was the choice to remain outside of the promised land. See, as they had more and more food in Moab and their situation maybe became a little more secure, it was easier just to stay put where they were and forget that they were already outside of where God had said that they should be in the first place. Elimelech would never know this, for he would die, but he would never know the heartache upon heartache that his family would endure after he died because of his choice to stay outside of the promised land. Nowhere does it say anywhere in this that he ever consulted the Lord in any of these matters. He didn't ask the Lord for help in this. We don't read that anywhere. 
And all throughout the Bible, we actually see this same mistake, that when people consulted the Lord, sometimes you'll read the phrase, so-and-so inquired of the Lord. They asked the Lord what they should do. They asked for help. They reached out to God. And God would provide, just sometimes not in the way that they thought. But when people didn't do this, we also read this all throughout the Bible, that the opposite would often happen. People would get off track real quick, just like in the time of the judges. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. If we're honest, friends, sometimes we do this. We leave God out of the picture of far too many of the decisions and choices that we make, especially when we're facing pressure. I wish that my first response when under pressure was always to turn immediately to the Lord. I don't always do that. And I would say we each suffer from that in different ways at different times. So what are we to do when we face such pressure? Whether it's forces from the outside pressing in on you, whether it's forces that are completely out of your control, or whether it's even forces because of your choices. There are some truths that we would do well to remember as we read in the Bible. That amid the stress that you are experiencing, God is also ready to bless. Just as we sing, His presence is ready and here, and waiting to be with us, even in the midst. The promise, as we've said about storms, isn't to take you out of everything. It's to be with you in the midst of what you are going through. I know some of you are under incredible stress. God's promise is to be with you in the midst of that. God has not moved locations. God has not moved to Moab. God is right here present with you. He still desires to have a deeper relationship with you. And even if we choose to walk away for a time, God is still here, ready and waiting. He yearns for us to turn our faces to Him. Even if we've just altered slightly, He waits for us to fully turn to Him so that He can continue to lead and guide us to turn to Him, to ask for help, and then to trust Him to provide the relief that we need to survive and thrive. Relief from those difficulties that are stressing you, your family, and your household. Sometimes, unfortunately, it takes bigger problems for us to encounter in order to realize that maybe I should have done that in the first place. The very presence of God promises to be with you in the midst of your struggles. There's a second promise that God has made for all who have put their faith and trust in Him. It's a promise regarding your inheritance. See, God does know you by name. He calls you child. My child. Child of God. And whenever we leave the promised land of fellowship with God, for a land of empty yet, yet attractive promises, you might find temporary fulfillment, but you will never find eternal fullness. See, Elimelech thought moving to Moab would solve all their problems, and perhaps it solved their food problem. 
but it ended up creating a whole host of new and different problems which we'll actually explore next week. Here's the good news for you and me though. You may leave what God has given you as one of his children, but it doesn't mean it's gone forever. His promise is still in effect. All it requires is to turn back to him. To turn back to him. Now, it doesn't mean that if this family had returned to the promised land that everything would have been the same as when they left. Often it still requires, you know, I'm sure some weeds grew in the meantime. There's some work that would have had to happen. And in time, they could have been restored, but only by continuing to trust God to help and provide for them. For us today, remain in God's presence. As the word says, remain in me, and I in you. Jesus has this conversation as well. Friends, allow the promises of God to speak truth into your lives. It may not completely take away the stress that you're feeling, the pressures that you are encountering, but it will never let you down. A promise to bless your home by making the relationship with him the center of your life. I know it's a difficult and complex world that we live in, but I pray that God will and would bless you and hear the deepest wishes and desires of your heart and help you each to live up to the name that he has given you when he calls you my child. We're going to continue in the story of Ruth over the next weeks. It's a very interesting story. If you want to read it all in its entirety and then come back to it, we can take a little pieces of it each week. You might even want to like read the last couple of chapters of Judges. That's a, that's a good option, too, just so you kind of have a little more knowledge of what's going on. There was a lot of heartache going on. You can see why they had to make some of these choices. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Go in peace and may this bread of heaven nourish your soul unto everlasting life now and forever. Amen and amen. Have a great week, my friends. Be at peace.